The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Now there are software platforms that enable anyone to create software without writing code and having to learn how to write code. And software that is powerful, customizable, scalable, enterprise grade, that lets lawyers and other services professionals and other subject matter experts build software without having to go through a coding bootcamp and that type of thing. And that I think is a liberating idea. Hello everyone, happy to be here. Really excited about this episode. Looking forward to another whiz bang version of the hearing. So generally we're always focusing on the future of law and where the industry is going with fascinating people. And I think this is an excellent example of that. As always, feel free to reach out to me via Twitter at Joe Raz, that's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z, or wait, that's uh, Z-Z for you guys in the UK, so J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. All right, question. Will it be commonplace for lawyers to develop software without coding? That's something that I think a lot of us need to start to think about. So what do you think? I mean, do you honestly believe that you could see yourself using software to improve something that you've been doing for years inside your niche or niche, depending on how you want to pronounce that, but do you see yourself sort of jumping on a computer and doing this sort of thing for yourself or for your firm or for your government agency, whatever the case is, Today, our guest casts his vote about this possibility. I think it's actually fascinating to think about. So will you be developing software in the future is the question of the day. Clearly technology has sort of seeped into everything around us, both professionally as well as personally. There's no question about that. So today we connect with what I feel very lucky to have an early adopter and evangelist in the legal community surrounding all sorts of things. So early adopter of blockchain and low code and no code and all those initiatives that surround that right now. So quick side note, it's only fair for me to bring this up. So what the heck is no code? In my vision of this, it simply means an application that allows you as an individual to build out a workflow or a piece of software without even needing to code a thing. Like you don't even have to know any of the code language, any of the languages that are out there. And there's, there's, tens of dozens of them that you might be able to leverage for this sort of thing. So the way I think about it, it's sort of a drag and drop application that you're able to sort of create. Low code, as you might gather, is something that allows you to code a little bit to build something even bigger, larger, more integrated, so to speak. So those are the two things that we eventually get into that I think are important for everyone to be aware of and involved with at some point in time. So if you enjoy the technology that's about to hit, including, of course, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, NFTs, those non-fungible tokens that you're hearing about all over the place, and the metaverse. And yes, we actually were talking about the metaverse prior to Facebook jumping on our toes here. (laughs) So get ready for it. That's what's about to come. That's what we're about to talk about. I'm very excited for it. Lastly, we do start to go down the rabbit hole a little bit for some of these technologies that you've either heard me talk about in the past, but are becoming more and more important. Cannot believe we're talking about the metaverse um, in the legal industry. Suffice to say, a lot of this stuff is creeping into the industry. You're going to have to be aware of it or be involved with it in the coming years. 
His students are embracing this, and I think it's worth a listen for you all to be aware of that if you've not gone down this road before. So let me put on my formal voice to read the proper introduction here for him. My guest today is Human Shadab. He has testified before the U.S. federal government, worked at several big law firms, has appeared on Bloomberg Television, and has been quoted in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Currently, he is a fellow at Stanford Codex, a professor of law and director of the Innovation Center for Law and Technology at NYU Law School, and specializes in the financial regulatory sector. Now, let's get started. The Hearing. Human, welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. Thanks so much for having me. My goodness. No, I say this. So as I start to think about this a little bit, um, and I say this tongue in cheek, and of course, with total reverence, I do think I hit sort of the, the trifecta of the Persian mafia, so to speak, in the legal space. First, I had uh, Sanaz Ascarzada uh, last year talking about the election, then Stevie Gyasi talking about the stuff that he's working on, and now you. So this is all totally, completely random, just very accomplished, interesting people hearing their perspectives. And uh, of course, speaking of extremely accomplished, you are certainly uh, more more accomplished than anything I've seen in a long time. So it's fantastic to have you on. So what I'm curious to hear about is one of the things I noticed was that you had actually testified before the federal government several times here in the United States, including before the CFTC. And that's, of course, for most people, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission on Bitcoin derivatives and before Congress on hedge funds, I believe. I think that was in 2014. So that was many moons ago in some of these some of these spaces. What was that like? Did they give you a handler? And uh, did you have a green room with all this, the special delicacies that you might have of your choice? Yeah, no, that, that, well, a hedge fund hearing, that was the closest thing to a kind of Washington, D.C. celebrity um, event because George Soros came and testified. Wow. And that was during the height of the financial crisis. So really rich and presumably smart hedge fund managers were also testifying. And so to get into that congressional hearing room, uh, you had to have an ID. There was like a line across way down the hall. You know, typically, these, these rooms are empty. No one's really there. But with these hot button issues, sometimes they can be, get a little bit crowded. But this was, you know, you need your seat reserved, that type of thing. Um, I could barely get my own seat, even though I was uh, testifying for the hedge fund hearing. <laughs> uh, yeah. For, and for the uh, the Bitcoin one, that was, that was fairly prominent. Even though it was 2014, even by that time, there was already a fairly large... A community of people that were following cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, so that was that was watched a lot, and there were a fair amount of people that understood even in 2014 the revolutionary potential of cryptocurrencies, including for existing financial institutions and the CFTC, of course, specifically like derivatives trading venues and that type of thing. So that was uh, pretty fun too. No green rooms per se, but you know, <laughs> there, there. It, it's a great way to certainly get out there, get your voice heard, and meet people. And I was, you know, I was lucky that my research had happened for, let's say, the Bitcoin one happened to that time. Um, focus on, on the one hand, financial derivatives regulation, nothing to do with cryptocurrencies at all, and on the other hand, an article that I co-authored right before that on. Uh, Bitcoin derivatives. So I, I was luckily really well positioned to have something interesting to say, I think, on that topic. 
Very cool. I mean, that's definitely, I know what you're saying in terms of like, it started to hit the mainstream at that point in time, but still early. I mean, you're sort of like a, a OG in this space, I think. So we can yeah, get Yeah, you know, I have, it's so funny. I have students who used to complain on their student evaluations of me. Why are we talking about Bitcoin? Oh. In 2014 and 15. And now this, I have those students from those same years calling me and telling me they're kicking themselves for not buying yeah. Bitcoin. <laughs> and uh, as we I mean, talk- I really have to like uh, counsel them because they are really like, I can't believe this. You were talking about this in when Bitcoin was like, you know, maybe $800, $400 or something. Yeah, it, it's insane. It is insane. Like as we talk about this right now, not that I look at it more than 20 or 50 times a day, it just crossed over the 60,000 mark uh, again, which is insane to think about. Um, and we'll get to more of that, I think, in a bit. Yeah. But I, I really would love to hear about how you got there. Like, so mm-hmm. where did you, where did it all begin? Like, where did you grow up? All that fun stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll try to make my life more interesting than perhaps it actually is. But <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm from California, a California guy. You know, as you alluded to in your introduction, my, my family is from Iran also. Kind of expatriates post, you know, 1979 Islamic Revolution and all that good stuff. But yeah, I grew up in California, went to UC Berkeley, uh, did economics in part because um, I tried to do a major in computer science and it just wasn't wasn't happening for me, let's say. And I knew I wanted to go to law school, so I just economics turned out to be the right major for me. But, and the reason I even mention this now is because I did take a couple computer science classes. I certainly liked technology, always interested in that, whatever is new and cutting edge. And I like to kind of build things myself if I could. But I uh, went to law school, did the big, did big law firms, then realized Los Angeles is not really the place for me. Um, and I just had a feeling that New York City is, and the East Coast maybe more generally, is where it's all about. So I moved to New York City. Uh, also was a practicing attorney for only less, less than a year there um, in New York City. And then a, essentially a research position uh, came up in Washington, D.C., kind of like a policy-oriented research position. And as much as I love being in New York and I love the money from my law firm, I went to Washington, D.C. to pursue a career essentially as a researcher writer at a nonprofit called the Mercatus Center at George Mason University uh, because I just wanted to do something else. And, and, I picked the, and they were hiring the area of financial regulation. And so I thought, OK, what topic is a kind of hot topic that a lot of people have not written too much about if I want to make a name for myself? And in 2016... Uh, it was hedge fund regulation. The SEC had recently been essentially struck down by a court for trying to expand the definition of investment advisor to include a lot of people that traditionally were not included. And so I was like, okay, great. This is the hedge funds. You know, what are they? They're kind of, we've all heard about, um, uh, you know, George Soros and maybe some other ones, but the industry was really growing at that point. Um, it was not. It was becoming more institutional, and so yeah, I started writing about financial regulation, hedge funds, and derivatives, and those types of topics, which obviously became really hot, but hot issues um, at the financial crisis time, a couple of years later. And so that's um, because of the Mercatus Center that that led to my testimony before Congress, and essentially set me up to testify, or really just give a statement um, as part of the CFTC hearing, which was not technically any kind of testimony. Um, and so that's that's kind of where that those things came about. And now, um, but I think I skipped over maybe a few years. So yeah, I was always into technology, and and I wrote my law review article. So, oh, so then I became a professor. Since I was writing academic research, anyways, 
Um, a, a man who I'll never forget, Andy Morris, a professor now at Texas A&M, he said, you know, why don't you be a law professor? Why don't you try, try to be a law professor? I said, well, I didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or Stanford. I didn't have a judicial clerkship with the Supreme Court. It's going to be very difficult for me to become an academic. A uh, law professor, which is a very elite kind of institution, a framework for hiring people. And I said, that's true, but that's okay. There's plenty of law schools, and you're writing about really cool topics that are so relevant for this financial crisis. And, you know, get, get out there and get on the academic market. And I said, okay. So... That's how I ended up in New York Law School um, as a professor of law, specializing in financial regula- uh, regulation issues at the time. And I'm still there, and I, and I really love every minute of it. And very lucky to be able to now be a tenured law professor at New oh, York that's Law School. Fantastic. Congratulations. And, yeah, in New York City. Yeah, thank you. Wow. No, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, thanks. Go ahead. And just a few more things. Yeah, so as I wrote more about financial regulatory topics, I did realize, of course, that technology is increasingly playing a role in um, in everything, of course, and for certainly in financial services. Um, and so I, I wrote an article about um, lending and realizing how loans and loan transactions and, of course, securitization, which was really important to them, and, of course, derivatives, how there's so much technology involved in trading and everything else in that industry. So then I said, you know what, I, should, I really should take a stronger look and deeper look at technology. And then one of my former colleagues from the Mercatus Center, who had recently moved on to found the Coin Center, Jerry Brito, he's like, hey, hey, who man, um, there's something called Bitcoin. You want to write an article about it, and you write the part about the financial derivatives, and I'll write the part about the Bitcoin, and, um, and we'll kind of go from there. And so that really got my interest in Bit, uh, Bitcoin and blockchain. That was probably 2013 when Jerry contacted me. So Jerry was really one of the early ones. He's, he's the founder of the Coin Center in Washington. And, and that really got me involved on a more professional basis as, okay, I'm going to position myself now. I'm kind of move beyond writing about hedge funds and derivatives regulation and bank regulation to be more focusing on technology and certainly the regular and how they kind of intersect um, as well. And, and so New York Law School in 2014, we put the first conference on I'm pretty sure we put the first conference on uh, blockchain and Bitcoin in every law, any law school anywhere. It's amazing. No, it, it's fantastic to hear all about that, especially as it, it's like, I, I firmly believe in you, we know we've talked about this before, but uh, technology really sort of rules the roost in many respects. And it's a matter of like, okay, how do we parse this out? How, what makes the most sense uh, under various regimes or regulatory issues, things like that. So this is, your background really just paints that picture. I mean, you're really, really well positioned to help people understand this stuff clearly on, on the legal side, as well as it sounds like you're getting deeper and deeper into the technology side too. Um, so I think we met probably four years ago. And I was like looking back in time, uh, almost to the day we, we were on a panel together and we were, it was focused on blockchain back then. And that was whatever, 2017 ish, uh, when it really sort of hit the, hit the fan, so to speak, in terms of the ICOs, initial coin offerings and all that stuff. Yeah. But since then things have sort of changed and evolved. And, um, I know you've spent a, a lot of time sort of pivoting in different directions that all deal with technology. But uh, lately, you've been involved with a lot more like low-code, no-code, no-code uh, uh, areas. Is that does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. So in two thousand, maybe a couple of years after I got into blockchain, I also wanted to learn how to build software because I don't 
like to just sit around and watch other people do things. I like to do things myself and get involved as a as kind of hopefully a prime mover. And I think obviously writing and speaking is great, but I also don't want to spend the rest of my life writing articles and speaking on panels. Um, with all due respect <laughs> to you know, with all due respect for the important role that plays. You know, certainly as we move in, as we become much more of a knowledge-based economy and a technology-based economy, um, that is very important. And, the, and I think actually the distinction between academics and entrepreneurs is collapsing because really to be a good entrepreneur, you need to be thoughtful and do your research or you're going to launch a product that no one cares about, which happens every day. And uh, yeah, so I wanted to build stuff and just kind of get out there. I was kind of getting maybe FOMO or just kind of sick of coders, kind of having this reverence for coders. Because they, they really are going to be developers. They're going to be the ones going to build the future. And so, you know, whipped out the JavaScript books. I bought, you know, Python for beginners. And it just wasn't happening. I didn't have time or the competence, whatever it is, to, to become a coder and to, to make sense that way. Plus, um, competence aside, it just takes a, it takes a lot of time to keep up with it. And unless you're going to spend a ton of time learning code and keeping up with it, because that really evolves. It's just not probably going to be a fruitful endeavor. And then I saw a video by a woman named Tara Reed and a TED talk called You Can Build Apps Without Code. And that's that talk struck me like a lightning bolt. And I said, wait, that's the dream come true. You can really build software without having to take years or whatever it is to, to learn how to code and only be able to do like an interesting website. And the answer is absolutely yes. It's because of the no-code revolution because now... And I think by next year, this will be widely understood, although it's becoming increasingly understood. Now there are software platforms that enable anyone to create software without having to, without writing code and having to learn how to write code and software that is powerful, customizable, um, scalable, enterprise grade. And that, and that's fantastic, right? So that let, that's let, that lets lawyers and other services professionals and other subject matter experts, doctors, whoever, to build software, um, not necessarily by lawyers for lawyers type thing, because that's that maybe is not the greatest approach, but it allows people and really the entire world to start building software um, without having to go through a coding boot camp and that type of thing. And so that is my interest in no code and. I don't. Even, I low, low code is obviously great too, but I think that's kind of cheating. If I want to go completely, I don't want to see even HTML or or anything else. But certainly, yes, low code is obviously great as well because so much of coding for a legal audience should they should understand that coding is just ninety percent of it is copying templates or re, or rewriting a template contract from scratch. And there's so much redundancy and waste that's being done by developers. So no, the no, no code platforms. Part of their value is to reduce that waste because 90% of 90 apps, 90% of the apps is basically the same. It's the, and we all know that. We open up on our phones, whether it's Airbnb or Uber or um, some food delivery service, which obviously says something about my lifestyle. Um, <laughs> it is. It looks the same. It's a database and there's a front end and you push a few buttons and it, it shows you what it needs to show you and it's connected to some payment platform payments rail, they accept your credit card, and that's it. And so now anybody can make those apps um, very fairly easily, because now you can use a template for that, right, um, with these no-code platforms. But the real point is that it's very liberating, it's very inclusive, and from that perspective, by creating access to, to technology production. And the point there is, the benefit there is that 
You don't need to take the time to learn how to code. And just as significant, you don't need to hire developers, coders. You can be a no-code developer and you don't need to go raise venture capital. One of the most significant impediments to starting a company is the need to hire coders and or go raise money to hire coders. But the no-code revolution tells you and really any individual person that you can launch a software company tomorrow by yourself if you have you know the time and the interest and hopefully a good idea or two and the ability to execute. And that I think is a liberating idea because there are so many potential entrepreneurs out there, whether it's a 30-year veteran of a law firm who just really knows the industry and knows has a killer idea for an app because they feel that pain every day, or it's someone new from, let's say, a first-generation American family that has an idea but not, not, the, not the means to go get a computer science degree and not the connections to the resources to make that happen. No, I think it sounds like a dream. It, it really does. I think the part that I'm kind of curious about, just to dig in a little bit deeper, is yeah. um, you know, I before jumping into the legal industry, I, I used to do a bunch of development more on the on the, the web side, so front end websites, things like that, and I, I loved it because it was more like the design aspects. And back then, you had to code a ton. Now you can just you know what you see is what you get. You can download an application and it'll build it out. Now there's even web interfaces that, of course, do all that for me far easier, far more simplistically, kind of what you're describing. When we move into things that are a little bit more complicated, yeah. I think about like the legal platform where you're starting to integrate various um, uh, data sets, maybe APIs uh, into these interfaces. I still, I guess I haven't seen something that it's completely no code. I still see this, this um, low code. So you need a little bit of tweak in there, though if you have some background or understanding, then you can start to play around with that to build out that more advanced thing. Are you basically you're saying that you think that we're at a point where the no code is sort of ruling ruling it or no? Yeah, yeah, you could. I mean, certainly there, there are many low code platforms and even hardcore no coders do make the case that if you learn a little bit of JavaScript, it's going to go a long way because almost all of these no-code platforms will allow you to add some custom code if you want. And when it comes to APIs, that's, those are very important, obviously, as well, to connect systems together. But you can use something like Zapier, which is an abstraction layer above APIs to connect them without coding, or something like Zapier, right? an automation connector yeah. tool, integration tool. And uh, oftentimes, there are plugins or uh, plugins of Zapier within no-code platforms. So Bubble, for example, has a built-in native Zapier integration uh, or plugin, and therefore you can connect a bunch of APIs through that. There's also things like no-code API uh, that, that also does a lot of that stuff for you. Uh, you're right though, certainly when it comes to API stuff, you may have to learn a little bit about how APIs work or, or maybe a lot of it, which is maybe not coding per se, but it definitely it can get technical, but I don't think it's necessary. And I don't think it's too bad um, either. It's not like coding, learning about how about APIs and JSON. Um, it's not pretty, almost by definition and literally, but uh, it's it's definitely a worlds away from the difficulty of learning um, a coding-like programming language and having to upkeep. And I think that's the main thing too, is having to upkeep and continually update your skills when it comes to coding is also very time-consuming. Uh, APIs, I think, because they're now so standardized with RESTful APIs at least, that it's not going to change significantly, I think, in the next decade, except, except to perhaps become easier. 
So when you talk about this clearly with your students, I know that they're probably leaning into the conversation, but if you're talking to your peers who graduated around the same time or people have been in the industry for a while, what do they say to this sort of thing? Do they, do they want to go down the road of this or they're like, absolutely not? Yeah, most of them um, are, you know, are still practicing lawyers or, or professionals in a more traditional capacity. I think the no-code stuff, the revolution, really applies to people that either want to be entrepreneurs or they're so in, they understand how technology can help them um, in their jobs as employees. And they really they now realize that, wow, I could use Zapier or whatever other tools are out there to help me do my job much better and automate it without having to call my colleagues in, in IT. And that's, so that's a huge value proposition. So platforms, there's, there's many platforms like Outseta and Uncork, and, they're, and they're, the point of those is to allow um, internal employees to automate their, uh, their work through these internal tools with, made with no code. Because there's, there's too high of a demand for that, for employees to be able to use technology, but again, not enough supply when it comes to IT professionals at companies. Yeah, no, that makes that makes so much sense. It's funny, uh, the company that I'm at right now, Thomson Reuters, they're constantly pushing people now to start thinking about um, just developing your skills. And it's to me, it's almost like a no-brainer, but I totally understand yeah. if, you're, if you've been doing what you've been doing for the last five or 10 years, yeah. why do you necessarily need to change? But they're pushing, pushing, pushing. And I totally think, everyone I speak to, I'm like, you got to lean into some of this stuff, just play around with it, do a little bit of reading on it. Sometimes it'll be a rabbit hole and you just dive into it. And you're like, oh my goodness, this is so cool. And it really positions you for the future. And a lot of this stuff is going to change, as you know, over the course of the next five, 10 years and beyond. So if yeah. you're going to be in the industry, I firmly believe this stuff is, is, is vital to success for individuals. Um, yeah, and I, and I think a simple explanation, if we, if we don't want to sound lofty and um, like, we've, like we're selling something, I think it's just simple to say, look, lawyers need to know how to use Westlaw as one example, right? That's a, that's, everyone yeah. accepts that. You don't have to go to the library. I mean, you shouldn't just go to the library. And that's the same thing. It's like these are they're just tools that help you practice law faster and better. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, all right. There's so much more <laughs> I want to discuss with you. One is, and are, you're familiar with the Accord Project? Yes. <laughs> what What is going on? What do you? How do you see that right now in terms of as it sits within the legal industry? What are they trying to do? So give some people uh, an understanding of what it is and what they're trying to do. Yeah. For, for, uh, I have not followed the Accord Project too closely as a caveat lately. But the Accord Project was founded with the idea that having a common common approach to translating legal text and contracts to, to computer code would obviously be helpful to have to have some kind of standardized approach, and, and standardizing the approach to translating contracts to code through an open source software project is is what the Accord Project is about. Very cool. Okay, um, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes because. As you know, I've talked with firms and corporations, government agencies recently about uh, where code is becoming more, <laughs> where code becomes law. And we're starting to see that happen more and more. Um, it makes me always think about that that project in, in and of itself. Um, I'm also curious. I mean, there's a lot of separate things that you've been working on, which again, in the industry is, is fascinating. I know you're a fellow at Stanford Codex, um, but you also have something else going on right now. It's icme.io. Maybe it's a new platform that you're working on too. 
Yeah, that's correct. So certainly one part of the, the blockchain industry is uh, there's public blockchains, there's private blockchains for banks and corporations. And the reason there's private blockchains is because historically, at least, the problem with Ethereum and other blockchains has been their uh, cost, their scalability in terms of speed, and their uh, privacy issues, at least to some extent. To some extent, um, at least, Ethereum developers and the community is are addressing those and in what's called Ethereum 2.0. And that's coming, I think. You know, there's lots of debates about what exactly that's going to be and how fast and if ever and what trade-offs there's going to be in terms of keeping it a decentralized computer network. But uh, because of those issues, Ethereum is not well suited for um, business use cases and other types of use cases that demand high-frequency transactions. And so as blockchains developed, um, there's become solutions for that as well on new blockchains, and they call like layer twos or bridges to Ethereum. And then there's these other new competitors essentially to Ethereum called uh, layer ones, or just new projects entirely, right? And um, one of them is called the Internet Computer, which was founded and outsourced by the Definity Foundation earlier this year. And I do think that is the best new blockchain and really has the potential of fulfilling the promise of Ethereum, which Ethereum cannot fulfill. And that is to be, and that is to be the world's computer. It kind we could of spend default, three hours on this. <laughs> yeah, to, to, and right, exactly. Yeah, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I think even Ethereum diehards would agree right now, you can't, Ethereum is not meant to run your, your software. You're not meant to put Facebook on Ethereum. But you can put Facebook on the Definity Internet computer. Absolutely. You can build real apps for real people, not just these like DeFi, decentralized finance, yield farming protocols, which are very <laughs> esoteric um, and they really have no impact on anyone's day-to-day living um, applications. But on Internet computer, you absolutely can. And already within basically five months of it launching, people have already built essentially, um, or not essentially, they've, they have built the completely decentralized versions of chat platforms, LinkedIn, anything you can name it that you use today, people have already built it or are in the process of building it. And when I say completely decentralized, I mean to also imply that Ethereum is not completely decentralized in the sense that Ethereum and many of these other blockchains, they require you to nonetheless run the front end and at least some of their computation on traditional corporate cloud servers like Amazon Web Services. And Amazon Web Services brags about the fact that 25% of Ethereum runs on their computers. And the whole point, though, of uh, blockchain and decentralization, or at least one point of public blockchains, is to run independently of existing incumbents. And the internet computer makes that possible. I get it. And I and I know all the arguments you just described. And so that makes sense. For those people that are very technical and uh, are already in this space, uh, that's all going to draw direct connections to certain things that they're thinking about. Um, if we were to sort of take a step back, how are... How is this internet computer uh, with Definity going to impact or how could it impact or help attorneys, lawyers around the world in developing these sort of dApps? Yeah, so coming back also to no code and then ICME. So ICME was recently launched um, by an entrepreneur and developer himself, uh, White Benno, and it, it yeah. received a grant from the Definity Foundation to to start and just develop its MVP. 
And I was recently, and the MVP is developed to, to have a no-code approach to building blockchain apps on the internet computer and websites, which are simpler versions, of course. And um, it's launched, it's great. And I was lucky enough to be brought on to the team at ICME. And uh, we, I'm, I'm really excited about it because it brings together two of my main passions, which are no-code and blockchain. And for lawyers that want to build dApps, I think ICME addresses things that historically have proven to be very frustrating for them because I think lawyers have heard the blockchain pitch a million times and we're so burnt out on blockchain's gonna change the law and replace lawyers. And the reason we're burnt out on it in part because of Ethereum, because it can never fulfill that potential of not replacing lawyers, but really helping to automate and streamline and make more efficient the practice of law in certain ways at least. But at least with Definity, because it is scalable and cheap, you don't pay to use it. They have something called the reverse gas model where the developers pay to develop, but the users don't pay to use. Um, of course, you can pass costs on based on business models, but that's, that's a separate issue. And so, yeah, for lawyers, now there is actually really a, a functional blockchain that you can actually build stuff on. And thanks to ICME, you don't have to write code to be able to build stuff on, to build these dApps, decentralized applications. So if, if we do agree that building legal technology will be, if not already is, um, part of the practice of law or at least adjacent services, that's one thing. So lawyers will develop software without coding. And then number two, if we, if we do also agree that building on blockchain can be really beneficial for a wide variety of use cases, then something like ICME, I think, becomes really essential for enterprise use cases, including legal. No, that's totally fair. And this maybe uh, for the record, I think it's only <laughs> only appropriate for me to say that uh, I am a bit of a Ethereum diehard, uh, but I do think it's healthy for the ecosystem, the blockchain ecosystem, so to speak, for all these organizations, all industries, which we're, are leaning into this right now, that we have multiple blockchains that are also a part of this. And there's going to be use cases for each and every one of them. Clearly, a lot of them will die off in time, but there'll be a, a handful, if not more, that sort of work together, not work together, but work in concert in some respects um, to sort of do what they do best. Um, and so I'm going to be following this much more closely since you've mentioned it. Really fascinating to see. Yeah, take a look at the and and, just, and also maybe you know quote unquote for the record, the Definity Foundation the way they position themselves is not as an Ethereum killer like maybe Solana or Avalanche would. Right. Uh, the Definity Foundation says actually we're very complementary because one thing Ethereum in a sense does that, that the internet computer doesn't is that they do have a security property or a decentralization level that um, uh, the Definity internet computer does not have at least not now. So maybe okay. for like a, yeah. like an ultimate global settlement layer, Ethereum would be used, but then maybe for everything else or lots of other things, uh, the internet computer would be used. So that's how they position themselves. Yeah. So you, I know we only have a few minutes left, but you um, work with all these these amazing minds, right? So you're you're forming these minds as they're in law school and beyond. Um, yes. How, are they? How are they feeling about this stuff? Is this stuff that they're like, yeah, no, this is awesome. Or are they like a little more tentative on this, this sort of conversation? Yeah, overall, they love it. We just had our fall 2021 legal tech demo day at New York Law School through our Innovation Center for Law and Technology. And we've had the, we had the most students essentially volunteer to build software with no-code software tools. And awesome. 10 students presented yesterday. We had five-minute presentations, 
50 minutes. It was beautiful. Everyone stayed within the time frame. Uh, more importantly, of course, uh, they built great applications um, and any, anywhere from things like compliance with Title IX reporting requirements to helping just to collect data about complaints to a city government municipality um, that takes it out of paper and puts it in a digital format to managing IP rights, to answering questions, legal questions about NFTs. And I'm going to put some, I'm going to do a quick write-up about those pretty soon. But it's really empowering for law students to know that maybe they went to law school because they don't like math and science, of course. We, are, well, we always hear that. But more importantly, that they can be empowered to know that they can be builders and creators too. And I think lots of law students really embrace it because I think, and I think a good thing is that today's youth in this day and age, right, they, they have different aspects of their personalities and careers they would like to um, pursue, not just law as we narrowly understand it. And no-code technology allows them to say, hey, you have this cool idea while you're in law school, build an app for it and see what happens. And you can be the first general counsel of your startup. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing to see that that transition. Um, so, all right, you did touch on it. So I have two thoughts left in the last remaining seconds here. Uh, one is NFTs. Uh, so the first time I saw NFTs was 2017, and I was like, this is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So non-fungible tokens, those digital yeah. pieces of art that people, I know you know this stuff, but <laughs> um, so what's your take on that? And then I'll go one further out, the metaverse. Yeah, NFTs, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think like with a lot of these recent developments or kind of re applications or repackaging of crypto, there's probably going to be obviously a lot of um, bubbles and overvaluations and everything else. I, but I do think NFTs are real. They have real unique value, and I think they're here to stay and only going to get bigger. Uh, I think that the, my, you know, I doubt this is original, but my basic perspective is people love collectibles, and we can't overstate that. I collected Garbage Pail Kids when I was in uh, elementary <laughs> yes. school, as well as, you know, baseball and basketball cards. And so NFTs represent, I think, that drive in all of us um, as buyers there's obviously the creator side of things because creators want to be compensated and there's perhaps a new way to do that in the digital realm. And of course, there's, there's a widespread applications of NFTs. And frankly, you are going to see, I think, the best applications of them being developed on the internet computer because you don't just, on the internet computer, you don't, because the storing data is not expensive or at least relative to Ethereum, you can put a lot of new functionality inside of NFTs inside of your wallet not just the hash or the transaction address. So I think that's exciting for a lot of people. And I've been thinking about how can we bring NFTs into legal education and maybe law review articles can be published as NFTs. Maybe court opinions can, because for whatever reason, we care about the first version of that law review article that we love that you saved in your computer or something. So certainly for academic research, for variety of educational purposes, I think bringing that type of NFT a digital um, collectability or digital uniqueness or even slightly maybe perhaps gamification of education could come from this. I think it's really exciting. No, I totally agree. And I think you could even apply it to uh, maybe a deed to a property or to your car or whatever the case is. I mean, that could be a unique identifier for pretty much anything and every asset you could ever imagine. And I, and I alluded to this a few seconds ago, but talking about the metaverse, and I know it's somewhat uh, ridiculous to even think about, but I did write a paper about it recently, and it's it's 
unbelievable to see the direction of all of this go. Um, Maybe a topic for another conversation, but uh, that stuff's coming. And it's something that I think we all sort of have to be aware of. Probably 18 months out, people are going to be doing a deeper dive into that sort of technology, especially within the legal industry. Um, Because if you have assets, property, all this stuff that's happening in sort of a virtual reality, what's going on in there? Where's the legal landscape um, play out? So probably more to come. Uh, Absolutely. And I think think lawyers help to clarify a lot of things because we can always think of things from a litigation perspective when things go wrong. (laughs) And so, you know, right, like like you were probably alluding to, who owns what if the original documentation is somewhere in the metaverse and not on paper and... And the authentication is an NFT hash or something. And of course, with DAOs also, who's going to be liable when a distributed autonomous organization gets into trouble or people, or people sue each other? That's it. No, that's definitely it. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Human, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Really appreciate it. It was a, a ton of fun. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.